Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne, who is off this week. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. My guest this week is designer, craftsman, carpenter, and educator Will Holman. Will is the author of Guerrilla Furniture Design and many how-to articles for magazines and websites. Welcome to the podcast, Will. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. So it's a really great book. We've really been enjoying it, looking forward to, I already built one of the projects in it, the five-gallon stool, and looking forward to building some more. Uh, I wonder if we could start just by talking about, uh, well, who you are and where you came from. I know you have a, you have a degree in architecture, right, that, uh, that you got right in the middle of the last big recession. And then, yeah. you, then you kind of took an interesting tour around the country. Do you want to say where you, where you went after you graduated? Yeah, I'll try to do the the condensed version. So I graduated in 2007 with a degree in architecture from Virginia Tech, which was a great school. Exposed me to a lot of sort of making and time in the wood shop. And then the recession was already being felt in sort of the architecture construction industries, and I had a little trouble finding work. So I went west, like all young men are supposed to, <laughs> and and ended up in Arizona at Arcosani, which is an experimental community uh, based around ecological principles. And I lived there for about a year. Then I moved back to Baltimore. I worked in a cabinet shop for a year. Then I went back to school at the Rural Studio, which is a design-build architecture program attached to Auburn University in Alabama. I did that for a year. Then I stayed in Alabama for another year, met my lovely wife, and um, worked for a nonprofit educating youth down there in carpentry skills. Then uh, the grant to my job got cut, and we all lost our jobs. So my my then-girlfriend and I moved to Chicago, and I had a lot of different jobs in Chicago, but I worked mostly at a salvage warehouse building value-added furniture out of old materials and teaching people how to do that, and I worked for an artist. And then I moved to Baltimore, which is where I grew up, Two years ago, um, because my wife was going to grad school here. Right on. Now, salvaging is obviously a big part of, of your work. Now, you said you worked at a, a salvage warehouse, but also, of course, the rural studio is, is well known for using reusing materials. You want to say something about your why you're committed to that and, and your philosophy about using recycled materials? I think a lot of the recycled materials started for me in college really as an economic necessity and also since college campuses are in a constant state of construction there's always a lot of dumpsters around with uh, good dimensional lumber in them but then you know as I evolved through all these different jobs in different places I kept seeming to stumble across uh, treasure troves of material, mostly because I was working on construction sites. And I think besides the economic reasons, the other big one, obviously, is sustainability. Some huge proportion, I don't know off the top of my head, of landfill waste is construction waste. I think it's most of it, isn't it? Or, or largest percentage, something like that. Yeah, it's absurd. I mean, 
the stuff that ends up in job site dumpsters is uh, plenty to build a house full of furniture with. Right. Now, do you have some favorite sources for uh, materials? And you mentioned job sites, of course, um, other other areas. For the cardboard projects in the book, um, I've had good success just behind your average big box store. Sort of the Best Buy style with a lot of flat screen televisions, that sort of thing, sporting goods. They usually have huge cardboard dumpsters behind their stores. I would just be cautious of the ones that... Um, are balers or compressors? I, you know, don't stick your hands in those. Right. Cardboard's a big one, and then some things like the bucket you mentioned. I found that just uh, in an alley, you know, kicked to the curb by some homeowner who had probably been using it to mop their floor for a while. Well, that's one of the things I really like about the book, which, by the way, is called uh, Guerrilla Furniture Design, is that you kind of chose materials that are really easy to find. I know, you know, we've written how-to books, too, and it's hard to, you know, sometimes you find those one-of-a-kind things and you make something out of it, but it's hard to specify that stuff. But your book really has what is like the kind of stuff you just see everywhere and often just pass by like the cardboard you you already mentioned i mean maybe we should talk about that like who would think you could build furniture out of cardboard i guess frank gary did a long time ago but right uh, you you've you've really used it really kind of in really interesting way there's a chair made out of cardboard and, and a light and some other things in there you want to say something about using cardboard and in furniture sure the the early gary experiments and then more recently the pritzker prize winner in, I think, 2013, Shigeru Ban from Japan has made these beautiful paper tube buildings, uh, especially for earthquake relief um, in Japan and New Zealand. And so I, I looked at a couple different ways to make cardboard structures, gluing together huge masses of cardboard, using cardboard tubes, or folding cardboard so that it becomes a stiffer structural shape. Are there some ways to make cardboard last longer? I think you you um, polyurethane the chair, right? Yeah, a lot of it. So that one, the cardboard cantilever chair, kind of brings all of these methods together. It uses corrugated cardboard. It uses masonite, which is essentially compressed paperboard product, and cardboard mailing tubes. And it makes a cantilevered form, which is one a, a great engineering challenge out of such a weak material. So by laminating it with wheat paste, which is all natural and non-toxic, the wheat paste offers some finish to it and fills in some of the crevices. And then I came after with a non-toxic water-based poly, and I owned that chair for, I think, four years before I gave it away in a promotional contest for the book. Still going strong. There you go. I was going to ask you about the longevity of cardboard. I guess you could remake it, right? Yeah, some things more than others. I mean, you know, I think the first project in the book is a, a stool just made from folded cardboard. And the first version I made of that was just made out of those triangular FedEx mailing tubes because they'll often give those to you for free in the store. And so for three three-foot mailing tubes for free, you could quickly craft a s stool in a pinch on uh, – the day you moved into your dorm room in college or whatever. And those projects aren't meant to be permanent per se. Maybe you use that for six months, 
But the great thing is at the end of that run, you can just toss in the recycler. Yeah, and it looks like it's a hexagonal stool. It looks, uh, it looks really, really strong, actually. <laughs> like a support yeah, of a substantial person. Yeah, it works remarkably well. People, in my experience, are always a little ginger about my cardboard furniture. <laughs> and then they, they try it, and people, part of that reaction comes out of is I'm, I'm a fairly small person, and people would be like, oh, well, strong enough for you dot 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 <laughs> funny you had another stool in there i really like too which is the tire tire one like an inflatable collapsible stool i thought was really clever you want to say something about that yeah that that one i'm not sure would win me any aesthetic points from some of my design professors <laughs> although it has a certain uh certain charm but it's more about being portable and flat pack, it's just two intersecting pieces of melamine, a nylon strap, and an inflatable uh, motorcycle tire inner tube. And you can put that together in, gosh, I don't know, it takes maybe an hour to cut all the parts, if that. And then you have this knockdown, super comfortable little stool for a music festival or fishing by the river. I don't know. I thought it looked good. Um, but maybe we should back up and talk about design a little bit because it's something I'm always really frustrated with. I just kind of think I don't have a design sense. Now, you think design is something that you're, you learn or you're born with or you go to architecture school with? I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk this day and age of the, about the maker movement and what that means vis-a-vis uh, -vis traditional design disciplines like graphic design and architecture and nowadays the tools to design have become so democratized with photoshop and with sketchup you know everybody has access to things that used to be gated off in a profession and i'm a strong believer that everyone can design everyone can learn to draw everyone can learn to be a craftsman like any other acquired skill it's just about practice and training research education speaking of practice are there a lot of failed projects a lot of things that, that don't make the cut it's funny I, so i've been a member of instructables for a long time and a lot of these projects were prototyped there first um if your listeners are unfamiliar which i'm sure they aren't it is you know the granddaddy of diy sites out there and Instructables is where a lot of my products have been hashed out, sometimes savaged in the comments or not gotten any <laughs> views or otherwise, you know, caused me to rethink and go back and do version two or three or four or five. You know, the cardboard cantilever chair is a good example. It's, I think, the fourth or fifth cantilever chair I made over a span of something like six years until I finally sort of solve the problem and mm -hmm. i'm sure i could go another couple iterations before i felt i had it perfect were that were the criticisms in instructables are those in helpful to you or is things that you incorporate in your design process i think so i mean when you're <clears throat> in design school you have great access to a critical community at all times but once you're out in the real world that's a little harder to access and you know the internet comments maybe aren't the best way to do that but it's <laughs> right. it is one way to do that right. and a lot of times people however snarky they may be in their comment have a perfectly valid point you know at the 
core of what they're saying. While we're on the topic of design, you you you, you describe a, what you call guerrilla design in the book. Do you want to say what, what guerrilla design is? Give us a definition of that. Well, it's kind of wrapped around four principles, and, and these are some things I arrived at through my own practice and also the study of a number of designers I admire, particularly the the French modernist Jean Prouvé, um, and they are honesty, utility, economy, and beauty. And so honesty is you don't need to cover up your material with obscure finishes. Cardboard is beautiful in its own way. Let the material express itself. Acquire your material honestly. Dispose of it honestly, etc. Utility, furniture, and design in general is a useful applied art. So if your furniture isn't comfortable and doesn't function well, but it's beautiful, well, it's still a failed piece of furniture. It has to hit the utility mark. Economy is kind of the sustainability piece, and I'm talking about sustainability in a broad sense, both environmentally, but also for health. Are you using all these toxic lacquers and things that seep into your skin or you're breathing in? And economic sustainability, are these things cheap to make? And then lastly, beauty. I mean, we're surrounded by so much bad design in the world. And, you know, you can go into a big box store and get some plastic cheapo furniture that'll serve you perfectly well. But everyone deserves a little beauty and aesthetic uplift in their daily life, you know. Talk about that. That bad design is everywhere, isn't it? Speaking of design, I was wondering how you feel about IKEA as a building block and furniture, is that something you avoid? I guess, I guess Ikea hacking, I guess I'm thinking of. I just did an Ikea hack. So I'm a little behind in my instructables because I've been distracted by uh, other projects and detours that I'm sure you, you're well experienced with. But I, I just made two lamps for either side of our couch out of a milk bottle, a hunk of pallet wood, and some Ikea LEDs. And... LEDs are kind of expensive. I'm not great at, well, LEDs themselves are cheap, but I don't have a lot of electronics expertise. I'm not very good at soldering. So for me to buy an off-the-shelf thing from Ikea for like 15 bucks, but then kind of solder it together myself and reconfigure it a little bit is a perfect middle ground for someone that has a good idea, but maybe not a huge technical you know, ability to do it from scratch. Um, and then I've used IKEA wood in a, in a number of projects over the years because when you go walking down an alley looking for trash, you're unlikely to find a pile of two-by-fours. But oftentimes you'll find some falling over IKEA bookshelf, and those are all flat planks that you can yank out and repurpose just as lumber, essentially. Speaking of walking down the alley, I'm, I don't know, you're in Baltimore, of course, right? And uh, I'm in Los Angeles, and I don't know if we have the same junk on streets. I imagine we do, but I've always wanted to, to have a design competition to deal with some of the more difficult things on the street. Have you, like, have you ever yeah. worked with uh, disposed couches or headboards, which seem to be <laughs> ubiquitous here? Oh, Wow. <laughs> Do you, do you guys have a big alley culture Oh, my culture God, there's, there? there's so much junk here. I mean, it gets scooped up pretty fast, actually. People go around, and especially if it's metal, it gets scooped up. But some things, for some reason, couches and headboards are like kind of 
cattle in the Midwest or something. Well, maybe in a dry climate like California, there is hope for couches. But if you ever see a couch on the curb in Baltimore, the humidity and and frequent <laughs> rain has usually turned it into a very sad specimen. That's right. Indeed. I forget that it rains in some um, places. I know. I, I feel for you guys. <laughs> I keep following the news and remembering my time in Arizona. And I just uh, really hope that... You get some better weather here soon. Well, speaking of Baltimore, what is it like to live in Baltimore? How is the city itself an inspiration to your work? It's interesting. I think Baltimore has gotten a real bad rap in the press over the last couple months. There's all these national think pieces coming out about um, the uprising here. And, you know, I work in community development at my day job. And so I'm in the city all the time. And there's a very complicated political situation on the ground here. And there's some violence and there's some crime. But there's also a huge amount of hope and creative energy, a very powerful artistic and maker community that I've had the privilege of interacting with. Um, and I, I think there's, there's just an enormous amount of untapped potential here. In, in sort of that Rust Belt legacy that um, hopefully some good comes out of the events of April. And that was that was kind of a turning point or a, a snapping that needed to happen to release Baltimore's potential energy that's been pent up for so long. Right. And uh, you mentioned before we spoke your day job, which is a very interesting day job uh, and hopefully part of the solution there. Um, do you want to say something about the makerspace that you're helping set up? I've, I've been very fortunate. You know, as we talked about earlier, my resume is very eclectic and has a lot of jobs, which for short periods of time, which employers aren't typically enthused about. But I happened to stumble into a really great job here where that resume was an asset instead of a liability. And I work for a nonprofit development company, and we are building a makerspace in central Baltimore called OpenWorks. And um, if anybody's interested, you can you can find us on social media. I think it's OpenWorks Be More and uh, follow along for updates on that. But we start construction in September. Great. Congratulations. Um, so what yeah, kinds thanks. of uh, spaces are you going to have in there? We're going to have a wood shop, metal shop, CNC and laser cutting, 3D printing, textiles, digital media, and um, electronics. Cool. Now, for people who don't have access to a makerspace, what are the sort of like must-have tools do you think that, that someone should have if they want to tackle some of the projects in your books or just general kind of uh, design projects around your house or apartment? I think mostly what I've started with is a, is a set of uh, good cordless drills so by set, I mean an impact driver, which is for driving screws, and a drill, which is for drilling holes, and a circular saw. And that right there could build, I would say, 75% of the projects in the book. Moving up from there, I think a jigsaw, so you could cut some curves or get into tight corners. And then you need a couple basic hand tools to back that up, two or three chisels, uh, an adjustable square a tape measure, a utility knife. But other than that, all the projects in the book were designed to be as simple as possible. 
Yeah, and there was one project in that book that I think is uh, something people should think about. I used to have a roof rack on my car, and then I just lost half of it on the freeway, unfortunately. And you have a pretty cool project on there, which can turn a small car into a truck, basically. I mean, with the roof rack and a small Honda Fit, I was able to carry around four by eight sheets of plywood, but it's kind of expensive. Yeah. You know, you had a really, I thought, a really cool project in there to make your own roof rack. This is actually inspired. So I worked with this really awesome crew of guys when I was, uh, and gals, when I was working in Chicago, uh, we were, we worked for an artist named Theaster Gates and we were renovating a group of kind of derelict properties that he owned. And my boss and some of my colleagues had these homemade roof racks on their cars with like kind of lashed together with ratchet straps and old two by fours and like some foam ripped out from under a carpet and they were all jury rigged. And I was looking at them and they were so, they seemed so useful. And I had a little Toyota Corolla at the time. I was like, if I just made it a little nicer and coated it with some all weather polyurethane, I could throw that on my car. So I spent a Saturday afternoon building one and it turned out to be very useful. Um, hold a lot of lumber with that thing. Now, uh, from low tech, uh, we had a couple of high tech questions for you. Do you use SketchUp and and CNC computer numerically controlled technology in your work? So, I do use SketchUp some. I generally sketch by hand. None of my well, few of my projects are so complicated that you couldn't imagine them sort of flat or just get by with a hand sketch. But recently, in the last year or so, I have been experimenting with CNC, partly as research for my job. I got hooked up with the Fab Lab Baltimore, and they're a international network of nonprofit um, makerspaces funded by, well, not funded by, but started out of MIT. So I can use their CNC machine for a very reasonable price. I think it's $5 an hour. And so I prototyped two projects over the last year, a chair that's held together with zip ties, and then a little storage unit that's held together with a ratchet strap. I think I saw that on your blog. And you mentioned you're kind of talking about a future in which you could order that on demand. Is that is that your thinking with the CNC? Well, what's really cool about it is I, I hooked up with this company out of the UK called OpenDesk. And you can find them at opendesk.cc. And they, on their site, they host the cut files and assembly directions for all this different furniture and the makers are distributed globally and the designers are distributed globally and they serve as a platform to hook those two up so as a designer i get to pick my price point and i get to pick whether i want to license it kind of like a traditional piece of furniture whereas you know um you only pay for it if you make a bunch of copies or I can host it for free, which is what I ended up doing. And now the zip tie lounge chair has been downloaded a couple thousand times across the world. And I found on social media, a couple people have actually built it. So it's kind of this idea that fabrication becomes hyper localized and then you crowdsource 
the design work from all over the world. Do you think you're going to be doing more of that kind of thing? I mean, you've written a traditional book now, but did you see yourself maybe providing plans in SketchUp or or that kind of fabrication that you just mentioned, that kind of thing in the future? Yeah, I would, I would love to keep working in both. I think one of the things that frustrates me a little bit about CNC right now is it's limited. You the the design language is very limited. You can only use sheet goods and then you have to think very long and hard about how to piece together flat pieces into something that doesn't look for lack of a better term so flat packy. Right. You know right. What I, you know what I mean? It's like this whole aesthetic world in itself and so it can be a little limiting at times. And also the, the kind of penetration distribution of that technology is not wide enough yet for it to be super accessible to people. Um, I think it will be there in another over the next 10 years. I would love to learn more about 3D printing and some ways that I could integrate that. You know, I've had, had some thoughts about notions about could you 3D print a set of Brackets, almost like Simpson's strong tie makes joist hangers and metal pieces for uh, framing houses. Could you 3D print brackets that allow you to just attach legs to tables or put shelves together, that sort of right. thing? Have you, have you tried that yet? I took a workshop in 3D printing, but uh, my output has been just about zero yeah, so far. It sounds like with the makerspace, though, you might have a chance to experiment with that kind of thing. Yeah, I would love to. I think another limitation for me is I'm just, I'm real slow with software. I'm not, you like to build things, I take it. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. But also, like, it just moves so fast, and it's hard to keep up with if you're not spending a couple hours on it a week. Right. You know? Well, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but uh, one question I wanted to ask you was about your thoughts on pallets. I think pallets are great. If you can uh, find them, you just kind of have to be smart and make sure they're not treated, which is kind of nasty to work with and you don't necessarily want inside your house because of off-gassing. Usually you can tell because they're denser, heavier, and kind of greenish or bluish streaks in the wood. But other than that, they're great. They're, they can be hard to break apart, but oftentimes there's pretty high quality hardwood in there which is way cheaper way to get it than trying to buy it at a store right well is there anything else you'd like to talk about we should uh, mention your book again which is gorilla furniture design um what's the best way for for people to pick up a copy of that well if you check out my website objectgorilla.com i have links to all the major booksellers on there including all the independent booksellers and so you can kind of pick and choose and find your best. Um, you know, I don't want to steer people any right. which way. And you have a blog too there, correct? Yeah, objectgorilla.com. So gorilla like gorilla fighter with one R. Same All as right. the book. Well, anything else you want to add? No, other than I've I've long enjoyed Root Simple, and thanks so much for, for reaching out to me. Um, and I hope you and Kelly keep up the good work on the... Uh, the homegrown homestead out there. Well, thank you all for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Will Holman. His book is called Gorilla Furniture Design, How to Build Lean Modern Furniture with Salvage Materials. His website is objectgorilla.com. 
To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.